0: Father, we come before you this morning, people in need of your help. And Father, you have shown yourself in countless ways, 10,000 upon 10,000, that you are our sufficiency. And so, Father, we appeal to that truth, seen most supremely in your self sacrifice of your Son on the cross. Uh, Father, if you've not spared him, then how will you not in him freely give us all things? And Father, we stand in need this morning of your help as we get into this text. Uh, Father, would you send your spirit to open up your word to us? Father, would you give me uh, strength and clarity uh, to communicate these things? And Father, give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear the glories uh, that you have for us in your word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, let me introduce you to a man named Bill. Bill is a man who seems to have it all. He's a godly man and a widely respected man in his community and in his church. He and his wife have raised an exemplary family. All ten of their children are hard workers. Bill has paid the way for each one of them all the way through professional school, and each one has married well. Several of his children have even given him grandchildren, and his time with his kids and his grandkids is one of the great joys of his life. Although at times, uh, life at times seems to be nothing but joy and blessing, Bill does understand, according to his faith, that life on this earth isn't perfect. And this is part of the reason he prays daily for his children and his grandchildren with the earnest hope that each of them will prove to have a faith like his and that they will be able to enjoy the kind of blessed life that he has. Bill has finally reached a milestone to which he has looked forward to many years. He's just completed the sale of his business and is ready to celebrate the beginning of what he hopes will be an active retirement. He looks forward to more time with his family as well as more opportunities to serve with his church. He's now going to be living full time at a mountain ranch that he and his wife have been developing for several years. Now, to mark the occasion, all of the kids and grandkids have planned to fly in to enjoy a week together on the ranch. As Bill eagerly anticipates their arrival later in the day, he reflects on how good God has been. He's enjoyed such a rewarding career. He loves his wife and his family and is so proud of them. He's very much looking forward to this next chapter in his life. As he reflects, he thinks, his heart has never been more full of joy. But then the phone rings. A friend from Bill's hometown is calling with news of a terrible accident. The plane the kids had chartered to bring the whole family up to the ranch experienced engine failure shortly after takeoff. Although radio communication indicated the pilots' hope for a safe emergency landing, a number of factors combined to lead to a high-impact crash followed by an eruption of flames. By now, it's apparent there are no survivors. Bill is devastated. He's overwhelmed. He feels like he can't catch his breath. The day of his greatest joy has suddenly become the day of his greatest sorrow. Why is it that life on earth can be like this? How is it we can go from feeling nothing but the smile of God to in the next moment feeling like all of the power in the universe is directed against us to make us miserable? What's more, how can we respond to this? When the weight of pain, difficulty, or suffering feels like it might crush you, what does the Bible teach about how you should understand and respond to these things? Let me just say, if you hadn't already guessed it, what I've tried to give you in the story about Bill is something of a modern retelling of Job's life story. As I've mentioned before in this series, the book of Job raises life's most important questions in a way that sets the stage for those questions to be answered in Genesis. And so it is here. The fact that life on earth can be filled often in the same day with such joys and such sorrows, and what provision God has made for us to understand and respond to these realities, all of this finds its root in the heart of God towards sinners. Last time we were in Genesis, we saw something of that heart as we looked at God's solution for sin in verses 8 to 15 of Genesis 3. This morning, as we move on to the next verses, what we will find as we work through the rest of chapter 3 are three post fall providences that offer understanding and hope to sinners. And you can see these on your sermon notes. Number one, God's providence of pain multiplied. Secondly, God's providence of sin covered. And then thirdly, God's providence of life withheld. Now, before we start unfolding our first post-fall providence, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now He might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The Lord has spoken. You may be seated. Now, as we come to verse 16, let's take a moment to be reminded that we are returning here to the middle of a scene in progress. The first seven verses of the chapter recount the events of the fall. Then, in verses 8 to 15, we learned about God's solution for sin, which includes his work of drawing out confessions from Adam and Eve. And then, in verse 15, God promises the serpent's defeat. Now something to note leading into this morning's text is that uh, verse 14 is the beginning of three judgment oracles. First, to the serpent. As we saw last time, Yahweh will one day crush the serpent, serpent through the ultimate victory of the woman's seed, the Messiah. Here in our text this morning, we find the consequences of sin for the woman in verse 16 and then for the man in verses 17 to 19. These are the verses in which we find God's first post-fall providence. Number one, God's providence of pain multiplied. Read with me from verse 16. To the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now just as verse 14 delivered to the serpent the consequences of his rebellion... So, verse 16 delivers to the woman the consequences of her sin. God's judgment in verse 16 touches the two major areas of the woman's calling, as it's laid out in chapters 1 and 2. First, pain in her role as a mother, and then secondly, pain in her role as a wife. Now, although the word pain doesn't appear in the last part of the verse, let me just point out that pain is the overriding emphasis all the way through verse 19. This word is found in various forms three times in these verses. In one case, it's translated toil. And the same idea shows up at least twice more. The clear emphasis here is on the painful and difficult consequences of sin. This is the original outworking of the truth of Proverbs 13, verse 5, that the way of the transgressor is hard. Now again, the first consequence delivered to the woman is that she will experience pain in her role as a mother. This aspect of God's judgment is emphasized as God says it twice in two slightly different ways. First, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and then in pain you will bring forth children. In the first part of the verse, notice the subject of the verb. God says, I will multiply your pain. God is the one handing down her sentence, and he is the one putting it into effect. You see, the fact that physical childbirth itself is painful for women is not just a matter of natural processes at work. It is rather a reflection of God's intentional design. He means for it to be this way. The second part of the verse, In pain you will bring forth children, With these words, God highlights the fact that the woman will generally experience pain as she does the work necessary to bring the blessing of children into the world. In this case, the idea of pain is less directly physical, and the work in view is less directly connected with childbirth itself. What this communicates is that the woman's overall experience of motherhood will be an experience that is marked by pain and difficulty. And if that weren't enough, the other major part of her calling, her calling as a wife to her husband, this part of her calling will also be filled with pain and difficulty. God says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, in discerning Moses' meaning in the first part, your desire will be for your husband, it will be helpful to turn to a very close-by cross-reference. In the very next chapter, Genesis 4, verse 7, In speaking of sin's desire to dominate and to subdue Cain, God uses nearly identical wording when he says this to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. What we see in Moses' parallel use of this wording is that just as sin desired to dominate and subdue Cain, the woman would desire to dominate and subdue her husband. And God's next words give the other side of her difficulty. And he will rule over you. The sense of the word translated rule here is not limited to the idea of exercising authority. Rather, it's better understood as indicating that the man would be prone to abuse his authority in a harsh or a tyrannical manner. Now, I feel compelled to make a clarification here because this is too often a point of confusion. So let me be quite clear on this. Male headship is not a consequence of the fall. As I've noted in passing previously, the man's authority over the woman is, as the Apostle Paul later argues, rooted in the creation order. Adam was created first and then Eve. Adam was given the task even before his wife was created from his side. The man was given the task of naming each of the creatures over which he had been given dominion. And then, after she was created, Adam likewise exercised his authority over his wife by naming her woman in chapter 2, verse 23. All of that was before the fall. And so, according to God's oracle of judgment to the woman, it's not that male headship is suddenly a new thing. Rather, God is telling her that her marriage, with its distinct roles of authority and submission designed gloriously by God to reflect the truth about himself, her marriage will now be an occasion for conflict, for pain, and for difficulty. And so the woman's calling, both to the role of motherhood and to that of helper, to her husband, all of this will now be marked, God says, according to his own design, by pain, difficulty, and opposition. Likewise, moving to verse 17, we read God's words to Adam. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God's first word here, because, reminds us of the retributive element of these judgments. And the words listened to involve the idea of obeying. Obeying because Adam had obeyed his wife rather than God's direct personal instructions to him, these are the direct consequences, or you could say this is God's retribution for Adam's sin. Next, we find the first elements of Adam's consequence. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, I want to point out here just briefly, these verses, 15 to 19, are often referred to as the curse. And so it is good to take notice of what is and what is not cursed in these judgment oracles. If you glance back at verse 14, you'll see that the serpent is cursed. And here in verse 17, the ground is cursed. But notice, the man and his wife are not cursed. Together with what we saw last time in verse 15, this small detail is a further indication of the hope of redemption God has placed here in Genesis 3. Uh, And if you're interested in a further outworking of curse as it goes through the Bible, two weeks ago in Sunday school, I sort of unfolded that doctrine. uh, So I don't feel compelled to do that right here at the moment. Uh, But just realize the fact that the man and woman are not cursed here, again, is a further indication of the hope of redemption in Genesis 3. However, that implicit hope is not the emphasis here. As with the woman's judgment, the emphasis here is on the pain of the curse. The ground being cursed, God says to Adam, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Now as with the emphasis we saw in the woman's judgment, so we find here also, only more so. The word toil, as I mentioned, shares its root with the word already used in this context for pain. The idea here is painful, hard, difficult labor. This idea is repeated or illustrated no fewer than four times. First, in toil, in hard, painful labor, you will eat. Secondly, the ground will grow thorns and thistles, which are not good for food, and tend to choke out that which is good for food. Thirdly, you will eat the plants of the field, and the idea here is agricultural produce where his food had sprouted abundantly from the trees of the garden and the land didn't oppose Adam, now he would have to fight the ground to get his food. And then fourthly, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, which is more or less a restatement of what was said up front, that the man's pursuit of food will not be pleasant. It will be hard work and it's going to be painfully toilsome. And so if the double emphasis for the woman is significant on the pain of her calling to bring children into the world, then much more this quadruple emphasis for Adam on the painful toil that will be required for him to fulfill his calling. Commentators are right to see these oracles, because of their relative lengths, as weighted against Adam, the one who bore primary responsibility for failing to fend off the serpent's rebellion from the garden. Now what you need to see in all of this for the man and the woman is both the pointedness and the universality of these judgment oracles. There's pointedness here in terms of God's intentionality to direct his hard words against the primary calling of each one of them. The woman's childbearing, which God had made in verse 15, the hope of all mankind, he has now made to be the focal point of the pain and difficulty she will experience moving forward. Yes, children are a blessing, in light of the hoped-for Messiah, childbearing is, in a real sense, the ultimate blessing. But the job of being the blessing through which, or the the vessel through which the blessing of children is given to the world, is going to be a calling that is marked by pain and difficulty. Likewise, for the man, he is called in his work to be the conduit of provision for himself and his family. As God's history moves forward, we find that this continues to entail a responsibility to mediate God's goodness to the earth as its steward and as God's representative. But this is made difficult and painful from this point onward by the consequences of sin. Because the man obeyed his wife and disobeyed God, even the ground is going to work against him as he seeks to fulfill his calling. So that's the pointedness of God's judgment here. But see also its universality, its comprehensiveness. These words of judgment apply literally to all the people in the world and to the entire earth they would inhabit. No one and nothing is exempt. And something we must take from this, from the universal and comprehensive consequences of sin, is that every single aspect of our lives is touched by the consequences of sin. Children, Why do you experience difficulty and tears when your schoolwork is hard and you'd rather be doing anything than learning math or spelling or history facts or science? Men, why does every effort to remain pure seem to be met with an endless barrage of material produced by the world seeking to entice you to sin? Any of you brothers with experience as a soldier, and for all of us who have seen graphic details on TV, why must some of us face, and some far more intensely than others, the harsh realities of war? Any of you singles with a desperate desire for marriage, why does God allow that desire for a good thing to continue to go painfully unfulfilled? Moms, when you feel like you just can't give another spanking and get dinner on the table, and you simply can't do anything more without just breaking down in tears. Brothers, sisters, children, all of us, Why is our whole existence marked with this sort of pain and difficulty? Friends, this text tells us that this is the design of our Heavenly Father, the one who does all things well, the one whose mercies are over all his works, and whose every last work is kind. Friends, God has made things this way by his good design. And this is where understanding comes in. Why are things the way they are? Our Heavenly Father is patient and kind. He hasn't destroyed us, although we have very much deserved destruction. And he's given so many good things richly to enjoy in this life. There is so much joy and delight to be had. But, according to our Father's good design, all of our experience as the direct consequence of our sin and our guilt all of our experience is marked by hard and painful labor. By God's good design, we are to be opposed by His creation, and our existence is supposed to be hard for us. And how long has He designed this to last? Look at the final words of verse 17 All the days of your life. And verse 19 Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Friends, this is the reality in which we live. Life is hard and painful, and then we die. Now, perhaps, even with the examples I've given, some of you are tempted to push back against this way of seeing things. Things aren't really that bad in my experience, you might say. But the way the Bible frames things, here in Genesis 3 and then especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, God goes to great lengths in his word to persuade us that things really are that bad. As it says in Romans 1, the truth of God's wrath against our sin is evident because God has made it evident. He's revealed this truth about himself in the way things are. He's revealed his wrath in the way life in this world treats us under curse. But it is possible, as it also says in Romans 1, to suppress that truth. In other words, it's possible for us to keep the volume of distractions turned up so loud as to effectively anesthetize ourselves on our way to hell. And it seems to me likely that this has never been easier. Consider just the two major emphases within these judgment oracles. First, childbirth. Although the pain and difficulty described for the woman have to do with more than just the the physical pain of labor and delivery, that physical pain is very much in view. And what has modern medicine given us in this regard? We have the good gift of epidurals and other means to nearly eradicate this aspect of God's judgment from a woman's experience of childbirth. Secondly, food. Do you, especially you men, realize that it's only in the relatively recent past that we have essentially been freed from the drudgery of literally providing food? At the time of the American Revolution, not much more than 200 years ago, it took 90 of 100 people to grow enough food for everyone. Any guess how that statistic compares with today? Now, one person out of 100 produces more than enough nutritious and safe food for all. If you think about it, that is a staggering reversal. And these realities that we have successfully removed much of the sting of these judgment oracles and all else being equal, that is a good thing. But this has made it so that God's design for pain and difficulty to characterize our post-fall existence isn't always as immediately apparent to us as it might otherwise be. Add to this the million distractions at our disposal, things like entertainment in the form of Netflix, Amazon, YouTube, digital communications and lifestyles, gourmet food on TV, at abundantly stocked grocery stores, at restaurants and on our tables, an incredible medical industry with a promised cure for almost anything, political causes to be for, political causes to be against, religious traditions to cling to, or religious traditions to reject and transcend to become more authentic, family or extended family or a family culture in which you can find your identity and your purpose, or the hurtful past of your family which you can find purpose by denying or disowning, Friends, not only are we more able than ever to put out of mind some of the difficulty and pain of our labors, our arsenal is also fuller than it has ever been with opportunities to distract ourselves, to indulge our cravings, medicate our discomforts, choose our preferred narratives, and at a moment's notice find the affirmation of camaraderie in whatever cause we decide to attach ourselves to. And so... This is one possible response to the post-fall providence of pain multiplied. And I think it's easy to argue this is the most popular response in the world. Men, women, and children everywhere give themselves over to a proud and busy effort to rely on ourselves in the creation to cover up or to dull the pain. However, as you might imagine, there is a second and more biblical way to respond and that is seeing with clear eyes the providence of pain multiplied to embrace God's second post-fall providence. You recall the story we started out with about the joyful occasion of Bill's retirement, shattered by the devastation of losing his family. As I said, I drew the rough outlines for that story from the book of Job, in which Job's highs and lows are even more extreme than what I described for Bill. But let me point out that as Genesis continues to answer the questions raised by Job, what we find in the narrative of the post-fall is, in fact, an even more devastating descent from glorious blessing than what Job ever experienced. Friends, Job may have known riches and success and respect and the love of his family, but Adam and Eve had known absolute perfection. They knew life in a world of beauty total comfort, and endless delight. Their pre-fall existence lacked any hint of discontent or anger, sadness, malice, guile, or guilt. And then, as soon as they disobeyed, a mixture of those miseries, especially an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, hit them like a ton of bricks ready to crush them. They lay open to God's judgment. And having taken the most dramatic plunge in human history from the heights of pure and glorious joy into the torments of sin and its consequences, there was only one way for them not to be utterly crushed by it. Enter number two, God's post-fall providence of sin covered. In verse 15, God had uttered in Adam and Eve's hearing words that would have been hopeful to them. Satan, the power behind the serpent, had been successful in his onslaught and had enticed them to join in his death and misery. But all was not lost. Rather than striking him and them in his anger, God led the man and woman to confession, and then he promised the serpent's ultimate defeat. And in an immediate fulfillment of this promise, God made Eve an enemy of the serpent, putting her back on his own side. And so as Adam <clears throat> listened to God's just oracles of judgment against their sin, he was surely broken-hearted. But in verse 20, we find that his response was one of hope. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. As one commentator says, we need to look at this verse very carefully in order to appreciate its significance in the context. You see, many people have thought this verse out of place. But I think that's because this is an expression of hope in the midst of a lot of statements that don't seem to give any reason for hope. And so if we follow that counsel and look at this carefully in its context, I think it will make, a, make good sense and that it will be a great encouragement to us. First, as I've tried to convey already, we need to recognize the extreme descent from glory experienced by our first parents in the fall. In addition, we need to consider some of the details of verse 20. There's an emphasis here on the name Eve and its meaning. The name Eve is related to the Hebrew word to live, and Adam specifically connects this to Eve's role as the mother of all who will ever live. Now, an important question to ask is what kind of life is in view here? Of course, Eve is the physical mother of the whole human race, and so I do think that physical human life is an implication of these words. But in context, I don't think that's the emphasis. Recall in chapters 1 and 2, there is the recurring theme of goodness and blessing, and especially life and its sustenance coming from God. This emphasis on life makes it a little jarring to come to verse 17 of chapter 2 and read God's warning not to eat from the tree of knowledge. For in it, in the day that you eat from it, God says, you will surely die. All of this works to establish what kind of death and therefore what kind of life would primarily be in view in this context. Recall further that the fulfillment of God's warning was evident in the immediate effects of the fall. After they sinned, the man and the woman willingly hid from God. They willfully cut themselves off from their only source of life. And so, like all of us since then, as the Apostle Paul writes, they were in this way spiritually dead in their sin. But then God issued his decree in verse 15, putting the woman back on his own side, making her the enemy of the serpent. In other words, the spiritual death the woman experienced when she sinned, God in some sense reversed in his words to the serpent. And so when Adam in verse 20 gives his wife a name that celebrates her status as the mother of all living, in context the greater emphasis seems to be on her status as the first to receive spiritual life after having experienced spiritual death as a consequence of the fall. Now notice also that I included a reference to chapter 4, verse 1, along with this point, point number 2 on your outlines. I'm not going to spend much time on this. I hope to dive into it in more detail in our next Genesis sermon. But it's striking how Eve's faith is displayed in the first verse in chapter 4. Her words there, on the occasion of the birth of her first son, she literally says these words, I have gotten a man-child, even Yahweh. Or, more clearly stated, I have gotten a man child who is Yahweh. Here, the unavoidable implication is that Eve understood God's promise in verse 15 to mean that the singular seed promised to her would be both God and man, and that God would fulfill his promise. Now, of course, as we'll see when we get there, Eve's hope is misplaced in terms of her firstborn being the Messiah. But what we see in verse 15 in God's testimony and here in verse 20 with Adam's hopeful words and then in chapter 4 verse 1 with Eve's declaration, what we see is that Adam and Eve have become the first examples of the right kind of response to devastating loss. What is that right response? It's the response of putting one's entire faith and hope in God's promise. You see, rather than trying to pick up the pieces and make the best of it, rather than thinking about how they can improve their circumstances and strengthen themselves to be survivalists, rather than looking to what is left of this now-cursed creation to see how it might sustain them and dull their pain, rather than taking any of these approaches, Adam and Eve simply submit themselves to God's firm and clear judgment. And Adam gives this indication that that their hearts in this very moment had become full of a future hope. Moving on to verse 21, we find God acting in such a way as to confirm this spiritual reality by means of a physical provision. Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, these words should make us think back to verse 9. There we find that the man and woman's initial response to their trouble was not the response of faith. It says there, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. You see, before God went after them to restore them to himself, Adam and Eve made the same error we're prone to of looking to the creation for ways to cover their sin and its painful consequences. Now compared with Adam and Eve's fig leaves, our coverings, and by that I mean the things on my earlier list like entertainment, digital toys and tools, political causes, relationships, abundant food, medicine. These coverings of ours might seem pretty sophisticated in comparison to Adam and Eve's fig leaves. But there is a reason the fig leaf has come to be a metaphorical label for anything used as an inadequate cover for unsightly words, actions, or reputations. Friends, anything and everything in God's good creation, as sophisticated or even as good as it might be in itself, all of it is no better than Adam and Eve's fig leaves, if not simply received and enjoyed with a thankful heart for God's sake. We need something more, something of infinitely greater value than Adam and Eve's fig leaves or our own. God, knowing this, acts in verse 21, both to demonstrate the inadequacy of their fig leaves and to meet that inadequacy with a picture of his sufficiency. You see, Adam and Eve were right. They were naked, and the shame of their sin needed to be covered. But their very best efforts would always fall short. Commentator Alan Ross finds in Adam and Eve's experience a reality that we all face. Men have found that their sin reaches beyond their own life and person, that it inflicts injury and involves disturbance and distress, that it changes utterly our relation to life and to God. And that we cannot rise above sin's consequences save by the intervention of God Himself, by an intervention that tells us of the sorrow He suffers on our account. Did you catch that last bit? Adam and Eve could not, and we cannot, rise above sin's consequences except by the intervention of God that tells us of the sorrow he suffers on our account. Now hopefully this will bring into focus the relationship of all of the Old Testament animal sacrifices to the promise of the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. In verse 15, Yahweh had already spoken words in the hearing of Adam and Eve implying that he would somehow become the singular seed of the woman, who would ultimately defeat the serpent in his rebellious plans. In verse 15, figuratively, by having his own heel crushed, meaning that he, Yahweh, would endure himself, the one in the place of the many, a grievous and painful wound. And so, following God's judgment oracles, and after Adam's faith-filled response in verse 20, in verse 21, God kills an animal, or perhaps more than one. This is the only possible way to understand how God could, as it says, clothe Adam and Eve in garments of skin. Those are skins of an animal. And who did that animal belong to? Recall from Psalm 24, verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. As with every sacrifice that follows, God's slaughter of this animal that belonged to him tells us of the sorrow it tells of the painful cost that he suffers on our account. Now, of course, such a sacrifice was not able to deal with Adam and Eve's sin problem in an ultimate way, nor was it meant to. By killing an animal, God testified to the fact that he would take from his own riches to provide cover for their shame and nakedness in what was to be their harsh new reality. And he set this provision alongside his promise in verse 15 that he would one day cover and undo their sin and its consequences through his own life, suffering, and ultimate victory over the serpent. This is God's post-fall providence of sin covered. God knew Adam and Eve's sin and guilt needed covering and that they could not provide it. And so he provided it according to his own sufficiency. Finally, beginning in verse 22, we read of God's third post-fall providence. Number three, the providence of life withheld. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Here we see God bring to pass what he promised in the earlier oracles. And just a note, this is an early example of everything God says, God does. God's first words here the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. These words point back to what the serpent had promised and what Eve and then Adam had reached for back in verses 5 and 6. And I think there's a bit of intentional irony here. God in his omniscience has an eternally exhaustive knowledge of evil. And as I've noted previously, all Adam and Eve knew prior to their disobedience was good. Their pre-fall experience was one exclusively of goodness and blessing and life. But now, Adam and Eve have acquired experientially the knowledge that they had lacked. And in that respect, they are more like God. However, in reaching out to take this knowledge for themselves against God's command, with that one act, they've descended from pure and glorious joy into the most wretched misery. This newfound lowness is in accord, as God alludes to in verse 19, with the humbling truth that man is manifestly not God, but rather he is dust. And as is also stated in verse 19, man, under these new humbled circumstances, will ultimately return to dust in death. Not very much like God after all, and thus the irony. We find some additional significance in the way these things come to pass in verse 22. Evidently, there was also a tree, we read of it back in chapter 2 also, a tree in the garden, the purpose of which was to sustain their lives unto eternal life. And if God had allowed them to stay in the garden, they could have eaten of that tree and lived forever in their fallen condition. But, and take note of this, God was too merciful to let that happen. God knew that life forever in this fallen condition would not be a gracious thing. And so, verse 23, he sent Adam together with Eve out of the garden. And here, I think, is another mercy. He sent him to work the ground from which he was taken. Much like it was better for man that he should not live forever in his fallen condition, so it was better for him that he should have to toil for his food than that he should enjoy the abundance of the garden free from pain and toil. It was better for Adam and Eve to live with God's post-fall providence of pain and toil than with the delights of Eden. At least in part for this reason, so that they would keep their eyes fixed on the future hope embodied in the coming of the promised Messiah. Verse 24 concludes the narrative. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Those first words, so he drove the man out, those words might seem repetitive, except that they create a contrast with sent him out in verse 23. This verb, drive out, is used in other key places in scripture in this same distinctive way it always describes God's action to expel people from his holy presence because of their sin. For example, in in various places in Exodus, God uses this same wording to speak of his intention to drive the Canaanites out of the land in which he promised to dwell with Israel. And then, much later in Hosea 9, verse 15, God promises to drive Israel out of that same land. And the language he uses there reflects the connection between his holy wrath and his action of driving out. He says this, All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Now, as I said, there is mercy involved. In God putting man out of the garden, but it must be seen that this is also the harsh reality of judgment. This is the nature of God's holiness. That which is sinful must be put out of His presence, lest it be consumed by His holiness. We see this truth reflected also in the provision God makes to keep man away from the garden. Again, verse 24. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. As a demonstration of God's holy resolve and to ensure that their expulsion is enforced, God posts a terrifying creature, a cherubim, together with a flaming sword, a weapon of war, to keep man out of the garden. This is God's providence of life withheld, And while it is partly marked by mercy, it is also, like the first providence, marked by pain. In driving them from the garden, and thus from the goodness of life and blessing that comes from his presence, God is, in fulfillment of his word, consigning Adam and Eve to their promised experience of pain, difficulty, and death. Now, In light of all of this, what finally should we understand from these three post-fall providences, and how should we respond? I have three points of application. First, you must see the hard and painful consequences of sin. You need to look them square in the eyes. Now, I want you to hear me on this. There is nothing inherently sinful about Netflix, Facebook, Instagram, the pursuit of pain relief, retirement planning, beautifully prepared meals, carefully guarded family traditions, or efforts to preserve our political freedoms. Each and every one of these can be good gifts from God. But ask yourself this. Could you be using a combination of these gifts in an effort to insulate yourself from the hardship and pain God would use to humble your heart towards him. The New Testament's ethic could not be clearer on this. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to accumulate comforts. It is rather a call to pick up our crosses and to follow him daily. And so, the moment love for neighbor, or God's call to purity, or a commitment to not covet, or obedience to the command to make disciples, the moment any one of these or any other single command in the entire Bible seems to threaten any of life's enjoyments, make the difficult decision to risk or even to outright sacrifice that enjoyment in obedience to God. If you will do this, you will be working to resist the anesthetizing effects of all the things this world throws at us in an effort to dull the pain that is inherent to this life. And you need to see with clear eyes the hard and painful consequences of sin so that your true relief will come when you move on to application number two. Secondly, see the covering God has made for you in Jesus. Friends, God knows that none of your fig leaves will finally cover you they all leave you open to his just eternal judgment. And that is why he did what you could never do. By sending his only begotten son to take on flesh, to die in your rightful place. Even though he was perfect, he was the spotless lamb of God. By the knowledge of Jesus' atoning death and resurrection, God has granted to us in glorious technicolor detail, the revelation that was only available to our first parents in seed form. The Messiah has come. He has had his heel crushed. And he will return one day soon to crush the enemy and to finally put away sin. And so, just as Adam and Eve did, you must respond in faith. Repent of your fig leaves and live Live the rest of your life no longer clinging to your life or to God's creation, but rather by faith in his promise. And keeping with that, thirdly and finally, remember that ours is a future hope. Brothers and sisters, we have been driven out of Eden. As good as God's gifts are, and as good as it is to live under grace as God's beloved church, do not forget we aren't back in Eden yet. Our hope of full restoration to God's eternal life-giving presence is still a future hope. Don't mistake this life as the life God ultimately wants for you. On the contrary, Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is why, as Paul says, to live is Christ." And to die is gain. Of all people, it would be safe to say that Paul enjoyed the good gifts of this life in a godly way. He certainly gloried in his enjoyment of forgiveness in Jesus, of increasing conformity to Christ, and of joy in Christ-centered community. But Paul did not for one minute want to hang on to anything in this life for its own sake. And so, like Paul, and like our first parents before him, you must set your heart fully on departing and being with Christ. And until then, risk everything this world has to offer to live by faith in the hope of that coming reality. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you for the glory of your grace. We praise you and we thank you from our hearts for your mercy. Father, we thank you that in some of the hardest words that you have for us, that you had for our first parents, Adam and Eve, you have placed hope, and you've placed the hope of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would help us, each heart here, to make an honest assessment of where we are relative to these things. Father, if we have uh, amused and distracted ourselves to the point where we are not sensitive to these truths, And we do not delight in the hope of your promise. I pray, Father, that you would change our hearts, that you would make us desperate for sin covered through Jesus. Father, I pray now that you would accept and receive our worship, and Father, that you would be glorified in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.